an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As the theme of the conference itself, uh, my paper begins with a question. Must morality be grounded on God? Ending with a question mark, <coughs> which might lead you to suppose it's susceptible of an answer one way or another. Yes or no. But in philosophy, the things are never that simple. Some awkward clown's going to get up and ask what you mean by the key terms in the, in the question. <laughs> what, what do you mean by morality? What do you mean by God? I'll try and clarify these terms insofar as it's necessary for our immediate discussion, both before and after moving on to more substantial questions. Let me begin there with a the utilitarian atheist who is nevertheless regarded as a moralist, Jeremy Bentham. The story goes that Bentham, an effective philanthropist and tireless worker to improve the lot of the disadvantaged in his very unequal society, was asked why he tried to help people. And his reply, characteristically honest, was, because I like doing that sort of thing. He was telling us, that is, that his moral code depends on what I like, in some sense of the word like, or on what I prefer. He doesn't say that he ought to do what he does, Though he can be construed as say, though, unless he can be construed as to mean that what I like to do or what I choose to do is quite simply what I ought to do. That would be difficult, not least because we are accustomed to say, though perhaps we shouldn't be, quote, I'd like to do this, but I believe or think or know that I ought not to do it. Nor, of course, would Bentham want to say that he helps people because he has some sort of extra legal, they have some sort of extra legal right to be helped if they're in suffering or in trouble. On the contrary, he famously commented that such supposed rights are nonsense upon stilts. That is, that the notion of a natural right is unintelligible. Overall, then, our problem in talking to people who hold that God is irrelevant to morality seems to be centred on the sense of the moral ought, and indeed, whether such a possible concept, however much we may think we feel the force of it, is intelligible, let alone useful. Once upon a time, there was a version of natural law, though not the earliest version, which somehow depended on the existence of God, or at least some kind of metaphysical first principle. So now I've reached the awkward clown's second question, namely, what do I mean by God in the context of the present debate? Or perhaps, what is the most helpful sense of the word God for the present debate? For I want to argue, however skimpily in the time available, not only that morality must be grounded on God, but that it's best grounded if the God is rather like the Christian God. Leaving that sort of presumption aside for a moment, however, I return to the question, in what sense, once upon a time, did the concept of natural law depend on the existence of God? And there are two answers to that question. Either natural law was the willed expression of God's nature in his creation, or it was merely the expression of his inscrutable, even perhaps wholly unintelligible, will. Some version of this second position, often dubbed voluntarism, and highly popular in early modern times, had already been challenged in effect by Plato in the Euthyphro. At least since the time of Duns Scotus in the early 14th century, philosophers have raised the question of whether, quote, if God doesn't exist, then supposed to be a purely hypothetical question, we could still have a natural law. Part of their intent being to argue that we can indeed defend such a law without introducing God. And not necessarily only as a source of moral commands, 
but even perhaps as a metaphysical or religious principle of value in, in other words, apparently random and morally neutral universe. But for reasons which can't be expounded here, the hypothetical quest became, with Grotius in the 17th century, an apparently urgent requirement. In a world in which Christianity was fractured and agreement about God's nature dissolved, not to speak of where it was necessary to sort out disputes about justice with powerful non-Christian societies. If God could be left out of the calculation, perhaps common ground could be found, perhaps through our common rational capacities, to resolve otherwise irreconcilable conflict. In the succeeding centuries, the problem seemed ever more urgent, as the Christian God himself was more and more widely dismissed as morally disreputable, hence unworthy of worship. If he was to be viewed in a strictly voluntarist way, as Luther and Calvin, among others, seem to imply, not least in their accounts of divine rewarding and punishing, then to obey him might seem merely slavish, a worship of power induced by terror, a superstitious act of self-preservation, not only irrational, but gravely immoral. In particular, the philosopher of 18th century France invited their readers to consider God's nature as promoted by Christians in terms of the genocidal brutalities and atrocities depicted with satisfaction in parts of the Old Testament, and of the unedifying delight shown, it was thought, by the Christian God and his followers in watching or looking forward to watching the tortures of the damned. Such a God, and that was often what was on offer, was clearly unworthy, they said, of the moral dignity of enlightened human beings. We, it was increasingly supposed, can do better than the Christians in constructing models of the good life. But of course, hidden behind this excited self-congratulation, an often unavoidable ignorance of history, lurked several unanswered philosophical problems. And I leave aside the strictly historical one of whether 18th century interpretations of the Old Testament could have been improved, since in the light of more recent historical reflection, we can show that they are often quite inadequate. And I shall also leave aside the attack by Voltaire and others on what seemed God's unintelligible partiality for a trivial and barbarous little people like the ancient Israelites. What then were the unanswered philosophical problems? That's no mere historical question. It also lurks behind contemporary debate. First of all, for the old voluntarist theoreticians, not only Protestants like Locke, but Catholics like Suarez, the concept of law entailed the presence of a superior, that is, a lawgiver, so their successors needed either to find a new kind of superior or perhaps recognize law-like phenomena without such a supposed superior. Yet in that very formulation of the dilemma lies the problem. Without a lawgiver, law-like phenomena are not really like laws and cannot be considered as moral laws. So, God abandoned, we must indeed find some new lawgiver. And the only possibility is the human mind. So eventually we reach Kant's reply to the critics of the traditional picture, a reply whereby we discern the dictates of right reason and will that they reply to the whole of humanity, not least to ourselves. That was supposed to retain the strengths of the old absolutist morality without its voluntarist or indeed more generally religious and metaphysical weaknesses. We ourselves thus enjoy the place once held by a voluntarist God, with the apparently additional advantage that claims about obligation are accessible and intelligible to all rational agents, Kant claims to have learned that from Rousseau, and can thus be proclaimed as genuinely moral and even democratic.
The philosophical history I've sketched thus far relates to the right and intended fall of various claims about the relationship between a specifically Christian God, however understood, and the demands of morality, especially the idea of moral obligation. But now it's important to recognise that whether or not the Christian God's the best option for a higher being on which morality must be grounded, the debate about God and morality had begun long before Christianity as one might expect, that is, with Socrates, as recorded by Plato, and with Plato himself. In the Phaedo, Plato makes the particularly challenging remarks about, quote, decent people, conventionally good citizens, and I suspect he would, perhaps unkindly, though one can see his point, be willing to apply them to many of their equivalents in our contemporary world. He tells us that they're like social insects, bees or ants, and that they'll be reincarnated as such the next time round. What then does he think is wrong with people like that? The answer is that their morality is supported merely by convention. They've learnt what is supposed to be right, indeed what sometimes actually may be right, and have accepted unquestionably, unquestioningly what they have learned. In this respect, they remind us of many in our own society people who are often used by atheists and fellow travellers in attempts to challenge the idea that morality depends on God. For, says the atheist, see how many decent people behave well and how many religious people behave badly. But Plato's approach unmasks this confusion. Underlying the codes of decent people may lie some sort of hidden but necessary axioms to which the atheist certainly, and many decent but unthinking people probably, are not entitled. And the same applies, of course, to a number of philosophers to whom such people may appeal. Thus Kant is not entitled, I think, to assert the value of the human person. That he does so depends not on his supposed defence of such an idea, but on the hidden assumptions that he's inherited from the pietism, the version of Lutheran Christianity, that he's got from his home background. And similarly, we can ask why Aristotle is entitled to claim that he knows how decent people will behave, how they will always want to act for the sake of the fine, when he has rejected the Platonic metaphysics, which through the form of the good would have offered him a possible justification for ethical propositions themselves dependent on his being able to give a proper account, that is, an account involving, I think, something transcendental, of the fine itself. So our problem is not that unthinking people are often morally superior to the overtly religious, but that when hard times come, or perhaps too easy times, Plato's morality is certainly a morality for torture chambers and bedtime heroes, they will cave in because their apparent morality, when, for example, challenged, as Plato would put it, by the twin threats of tyrannical violence and the loss of a good reputation, will fail to provide adequate support for maintaining their old moral ways. Perhaps Plato exaggerates when he suggests that moral collapse normally ensues, but he's certainly right in all too many cases. Think of the appalling record of German academics during the Nazi period, and ask yourselves how many of us wouldn't have done the same thing. Not necessarily, as with Heidegger, by becoming unabashed members of the Nazi party, but rather by somehow not knowing about the tortures and murders being carried out in the concentration camp down the street. So we should follow Plato a little further, for as I've regularly pointed out elsewhere, he had already identified the core of the problem which confronts us today in thinking about the relationship of morality and religion. 
Obviously, he had no direct notion of the Christian God. Indeed, and we shall return to this, his idea of God, or something equivalent, must be importantly different from ours. Nevertheless, it's worth seeing just how far he can go with what he has. One of his basic aims, of course, was to refute the axiom of Protagoras that man is the measure of all things. That proposition, of course, is ambiguous. It may mean that men in general are the measure, or that each one of us is the measure. Plato normally takes it in the latter sense, probably supposing, I think rightly, that in practice at least, the former alternative will collapse into the more individualist latter. That is, he holds, a morality dependent on human conventions and decisions cannot defend itself, except of course by force or fraud, from collapsing into a claim that we each of us construct our own code of behaviour, modifying what we desire only in accordance with the Hobbesian recognition that if we want to enjoy ourselves in relative peace, we shall have to agree on contracts and conventions as the unavoidable price to be paid for such security. In opposition to all that, Plato claimed that ma not man but God is the measure of all things. That is, there is a standard in morality which does not depend on the dictates of human reasoning or human passions, and that must be recognised as what God, determined by the external standard for Plato or the form of the good, would decree. In the Timaeus, he tells us that God organises the world because he wants to and because he is good. For present purposes, I leave aside the historical question of how he conceives of, or comes to conceive of, the relationship between God and goodness, in order to consider on the fact that without such an external standard, he offers arguments to show not merely that many unthinking people may only appear to be moral, the quote, decent folk I mentioned earlier, but that in the last resort, their morality itself cannot be defended against the implications of Protagoras' claim that somehow man is the measure of all things. In what sense then could I, or could we, be the measure of all things? Plato invoked an external standard. That is, he invoked a metaphysical first principle to account for the very possibility of a morality rather than a set of conventions or something like a professional code. In our modern philosophical world, of course, most of us cannot remain satisfied with, it, with his unavoidable dichotomy between God and goodness, though Iris Murdoch was an exception to that rule. Rather, we find that from entirely different standpoints and aspirations, both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky urge in their different ways, though each in rough agreement here with Plato, that without religious or Platonizing metaphysical underpinnings, no moral claims, least of all ever obligation, are defensible. Defensible, I'm talking about. That reading of the situation, however, is now challenged, not only by atheists or non-believers who think they could, that something they call morality can be constructed without such defences, but more surprisingly, by religious people who argue that the possible existence of a benevolent God has nothing to do with what they can demonstrate about the basic principles of morality. I shall look, therefore, at both these anti-Platonic, anti-Nietzschean, and anti-Dostoevskian proposals. Morality is concerned with what is good, or what it is good to do, or with what we ought to do because it's right to do it, or with all of those. There again, any interpretation of the implications of such comments will depend on how good or right, etc., are understood. Specifically, for example, it'll depend on whether we want to found justice claims on positive law or on some version of natural law. That is, 
whether we discern the first principles of obligation in the nature of what is, but perhaps only with reference to a transcendent or non-natural factor, or in the constructions of men, invented for whatever reasons, whether good or bad. Invented morality is based on the principle that man is the measure of all things, will be either self-serving or group-serving. That is, they will claim to serve the interests either of an individual or of a group of individuals or of the whole human race, including future generations. They may envisage the preservation, more or less, of the social status quo as social glue, or of one's own life, or of the greatest good of the greatest number, or of human rights, whatever they are asserted to be from time to time. When we identify such goals as good and desirable, we imply, perhaps problematically as we shall see, that we ought to pursue them, and perhaps even ought to enforce them wherever possible. So the philosopher will ask for the grounds on which we have made our decisions and assertions, and inquire how we justify the order of priorities we have set among the various goods we have adopted. If we think, for example, that we all have a right to a good health care, good health, and that the establishment of a health care system is good for some particular group, we have previously determined that the preservation of human life itself, or at least some versions or manifestations of it, is a good, indeed a logically prior good. So we need to now ask whether in our moral determinations we've been determining priorities among desirable goals, as well as the means to secure those goals, or whether we can more generally justify the goals themselves. And if our minds are not, as instruments, merely the slaves of our passions, we can ask how they can be deployed to determine or identify what our purposes are or ought to be. Thus, if we want to determine how a man or man may exercise his capacity to measure, we may implausibly assume we must follow our passions blindly, or we may try to prioritise them, or generally to find the, quote, the rational course. If we choose either of the latter options, we are prone to assume that given the right circumstances, there really is a rational or more rational course, and significantly to neglect to ask whether it's logically incumbent on us Hence that we ought, in some sense, to follow what appears to be the rational course, even when we can really discover what it actually is. Hence arise various thought experiments, wholly detached from actual life, about what we would do behind a veil of ignorance or in a state of nature. However, in engaging in such experiments, we make a monstrous and unjustified assumption, namely that we are ahistorical beings, and that thus we ever could enjoy such an option and so logically derive our behaviour from it. More fundamentally, the error of that kind of thinking reveals the deeper error of thinking that we, by an act of reason we can correct the morally relevant historical circumstances in which we find ourselves, and thus reduce ourselves experimentally to homogeneous ahistorical entities. For although as human beings we are similarly moral beings, we are born into very different moral circumstances. It's an unavoidable inference from the unique character both of our genetic history and of our moral nurture that we, find we face very different moral tasks. And who is to know how well or ill we variously succeed or can succeed in performing them in the real world? Undoubtedly Kant was the philosopher who made the most determined effort to pursue a version of Protagoras' approach without doing what I, following Plato, have claimed that Protagoreans of every stripe must do, 
namely reduced morality, if not to the law of the Hobbesian jungle, then certainly to convention. And some of his recent constructivist descendants, lacking even his residual theism, have made things worse. They tacitly accept some of his unjustified, though not necessarily untrue, premises about the worth of human beings, while adding others drawn from similarly unjustified assumptions of contemporary culture. Their position is the more exposed in that they abandon Kant's resort to the Cartesian-sounding claim that our real nature is part of a specifically designated noumenal realm, as well as his assertion that God can eventually be invoked to resolve the tension between duty and happiness. As I've already noticed, among Kant's less well-defended premises are first that persons have equal value, which would entail perhaps that they have some sort of right all three traits equally, and secondly, that what we think of as a rational decision, if that be regularly, indeed universally possible, is at the same time an indication of what we ought to do. For although Kant argues that we can legislate how it's right for human beings to act, and though he believes, for insufficiently identifiable reasons, and for the satisfaction of anti-Christians open or hidden, that ought implies can, he fails to show how that ought is morally absolute even were it true, inter alia, that all persons are equally worthy and exist in similar moral space. That would be reasonable in his view if we are all capable of an equal rationality, but there's no reason to believe that that's the case. Of course, to deny claims that we, all, that we are all equally rational and therefore equally valuable is not to say that we are, is not to deny that we are all equally valuable, only that if that is to be so, there must be another explanation for it. And there remains on the horizon the disturbingly nihilist option that we are indeed all equal in value, in having no value at all. At this point, I touch on it only briefly, we, but, we, but there we really are close to the developing spirit of postmodernity, whereby a well-known philosopher has argued recently in a th over a thousand pages that nothing really matters very much. Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, not to forget Plato, would ask whether we can refute him, and if so, on what kind of metaphysical or, med or religious basis. Yet despite all that, a number of religiously-minded philosophers still think that we must follow Kant in the direction of practical reasoning if we are to escape the scepticism of Hume. And on an occasion like this, I shall obviously have to refer to that group again. A better version of Protagoras's claim, and probably what he himself intended, is that morality, after all, is not just rationality, but that it is conventional. That implies that, Kantians aside, many contemporary ethical schemes are Protagorean. Such would be all forms of contractarianism, whether Hobbesian or Rawlsian. All depend on what we ourselves accept to be right, and such rightness depending, for example, on whether they are deemed, without the benefit of Kantian claims about the strictly rational, therefore moral course, to promote the greatest good or safety of the greatest number, with ourselves to determine what that greatest good just happens to be. Yet all such schemes find it impossible to account for why we ought to act conventionally, rather than why conventional actions might make a certain sense, or feel right, or consoling, or self-flattering, or whatever or why we ought to promote the greatest good of the greatest number, or indeed why we ought to do anything at all, as distinct, that is, from claims that such and such a moral scheme will benefit us most, 
be the most likely to preserve our lives in a relatively happy condition, etc., and thus that they ought to be performed. Of course, there are quite other varieties of ethical proposals too, most of which may be dubbed ideological, as depending on claims that we should or ought to do what the march of history or progress or evolution, quote, teaches us that we ought to do. Perhaps we should still have to do so anyway in some sort of determinist fashion, like dogs dragged along behind the stoic cart, all good comparativists and free to follow our destiny. I leave such schemes aside, merely noting that they are all in effect non-providential versions or variations on Stoic or near-Stoic naturalism. They have the advantage of identifying us as animals rooted in history, but they invariably depend on some piece of alleged knowledge as to how the future will pan out and how therefore we ought, quote, to come to terms with it or indeed even actively promote it. Leaving such schemes aside, we note that all man-made Protagorean constructions have similar disadvantages. Firstly, they offer no defence against nihilism in some form or another. Whether the nihilist claims that all morality is hidden power-seeking, which can be exposed by the Nietzschean genealogist, or whether he merely objects that he has no compelling reason to accept it, perhaps citing carpe diem, short-term advantages and pleasures are as attractive as something more distant. We may just prefer them. That nihilist move might be supported by pointing out to the conventionalists, as indeed also to the Kantian, that we are not just reasonable creatures, we are more complex than that. And there is a second major objection to conventionalism too. Whatever law may be made by one man or one group and claimed as moral can be unmade by the next man or group under some similar pretext. If all man-made morality is conventional, there's no binding moral reason to accept any of it, even if there may be reasons of self-interest and comfort which make it preferable to do so. But moralists and their followers among the public regularly have run reasonably asked for much more. For example, they, they may want to say that the Holocaust was simply wrong, not that we have decided or think it helpful or comforting or necessary to call it wrong. Yet if for such people all law is positive law, they have no good reason to say anything is simply wrong, even if it is. And it would follow that unless an international positive law exists and is accepted as binding, which in any case could be for non-moral reasons of convenience, that no one is to be condemned on moral grounds outside his own company or his own society. Hence, after the Second World War, Goering and his fellow dependents at Nuremberg ought to have been acquitted. They were condemned not because they offended against any duly established positive law, but because it was thought to be fitting to convict them for what they had done. But if I say that, I, th I need to say that I'm doing more than appealing to my or someone's preference or prejudice or to undefended theses about a, quote, morally significant, close quotes, common humanity. We seem to have hit a brick wall. <clears throat> we can, of course, execute people like Goering, but well, we can't claim any absolute right to do so unless, as followers of Callicles in the Gorgias, we simply hold that might or victory makes right. Those who condemned the Nazi leaders claimed to be doing much more than exercising the strong man's right to kill. <coughs> it may be for some reason they'd lit upon, or just because they didn't like jackboots. 
I turn now to a further assumption sometimes made by those proposing a kind of Kantian solution to our present difficulties, namely that we have an innate inst instinct for what's good for us. Clearly this sort of assumption is necessary for Christians claiming that what is natural is rational, lovable and the will of God, and that therefore such an instinct is directed ultimately to goodness and God himself. But even granted such an instinct towards what we might label goodness, in a godless and, or at least non-providential universe, this is instinct has not only arisen by chance or natural selection, but is directed not to what is morally good, for that may not exist, but to what we want consciously or otherwise for ourselves. And in that world, Hobbes again seems to be on the right lines. Instead of a desire for God and goodness, we have a desire for self-preservation, and that represents all the good there is available. So the mere desire or instinct for what we choose, perhaps inevitably to call our good, gets the atheist nowhere. <coughs> At this point I want to turn to Augustine for a little help, and of course to an Augustine who has appropriated important platonic premises into his account of our moral and spiritual nature. Arguing against the stereotyping account of virtue, Augustine urges that the virtues are not merely modes of right reason, though they are that, but more basically, modes of love. This is from the De Moribus, book one. That claim will give him an account of motivation and of a moral ought, which, as I have urged, a, a mere Kantian rationality will lack. And Augustine believes that his account to be not only scripturally based, but supported by an empirical analysis of human nature. We are not, as ancient, Kantian, ancient Stoics or modern Kantians, among others, would have it, primarily, even really, minds, but reasoning and effective beings. Hence, to fulfil our moral obligations, it's not enough to know what is right. We must also be capable of loving it appropriately. For Plato himself, especially in the Ninth Book of the Republic, had already grasped that knowing the truth in its entirety is inseparable from loving it, that the mind is a loving mind, and that thus weakness of will is impossible in a good man, i.e. guardian in Plato's terms. In confronting modern claims about motivation, this is of the utmost importance. Plato's account of the mind, and in this respect Augustine is very close to him, is substantially different from that of Descartes, who lived in a philosophical world which had lost the Platonic insight that in the good man perfection of mind and perfection of love of the good are inseparable. A new world which has fallen back on the notion that our actions must ultimately be explained either as driven by a free, however explained, will, or by an intellect determined by its objects. As we've already noticed, Kant tried to resolve that disjunction by arguing that practical reason writes out its dictates as moral obligations. But then, where is the Platonic and Augustinian love of the good? In the seventh book of the Republic, Socrates is challenged by Glauco, who demands to know why the good man has to return to the cave and instruct and lead his fellows, but finds his query dismissed almost out of hand. That he returns, Socrates remarks dryly, is a just demand, and as a just man he will obey. That's because he both knows what the good is and loves it sufficiently to act without hesitation in accordance with its dictates in every circumstance. And indeed that Plato is basically right about this is far from unreasonable. If I say that I love someone and then add that I wouldn't do what I could for them, the reaction of my hearer will be that I don't really love them or love them enough. 
But Plato's guardians both know the form of the good and love it. Their knowledge is a facet of their love. Their love is a facet of their knowledge. It's worth observing that even when this platonic insight had been generally lost and love had largely been replaced by will, Platonizers sometimes found ways to reassert revised versions of Plato's message. Thus, among the Cambridge Platonists in the 17th century, both Moore and Cudworth hold that any division of the mind or faculties of knowing and willing is mistaken. Rather, we must refer our motivation for moral behaviour to what Moore, in his Enchiridion Ethicum, calls rather oddly our, quote, boniform factor. That's actually a translation from Plotinus's Greek, as I recently discovered, agathoides in Greek. In line with his adaptation of Platonism, Augustine holds that if we try to live without the true God, we are in effect trying to live in a universe in which we can recognise a number of significant metaphysical truths, if we like doing that sort of thing and are good at it, while still being unable to follow their moral implications, or indeed any strictly moral implications. In his view, as I've said, ought does not, for us now, imply can. Hence his, his challenge is dual. If there are no transcendent norms, then morality is impossible and must be replaced, at best and for comfort's sake, by some form of conventionalism, perhaps disguised as morality. Plato, too, had noted that in the Laws, Book 2. But even if these norms exist, we can ad adequately access them and live accordingly without some knowledge of the true God and experience with the effect of his grace. Augustine's own restatement of our moral situation is, of course, that God someone whose attributes other platonic moral forms exists, hence we live in moral space, and that we can indeed improve our lives with his assistance. All attempts to deny this and substitute some moral alternative are futile, being merely self-protective devices based on ignorance of the human condition or designed, here he cites the ancient Romans, vainly to protect ourselves against the fear of death. If Plato's transcendental metaphysics, given a more religious, that is for him, Christian, in Augustine's case, form, is reinstated, then a genuine, that is, non-conventional morality, not a mere code of practice, is possible. But let us ask more precisely what, apart from a darker account of man's present fallen nature and a denial that platonic errors has the power to reach its target, Augustine's position has to offer, which Plato's has not. Certainly both see man as seeking the good, but in Augustine's view, Platonic man cannot find his way back to it. But there is more. He also believes that Plato's account of how we can justify notions of what we ought to do needs to be strengthened considerably. His critique would involve three propositions. The first is that God, to be the effective first principle of morality, must be personal. The second is that a personal God delivers the possibility of recognising the nature of sin, that is, as distinct from that of crime. And hence, a more robust distinction between what is moral and what is merely legal. The third is that we exist not only in metaphysical, but also in historical space and time. I shall briefly consider these aims in turn. A well-known, if curious, feature of Plato's metaphysics, at least in its normal version, is that neither gods nor men top the hierarchy of beings, that place being held by the forms. And although love, as desire for the good and the beautiful, drives the potentially perfect man towards his goal, 
The relation between the soul and the form of the good is curiously non-reciprocal. We are to love, indeed we exist, or are made so as to love what is incapable of loving. That's the explanation of a puzzling feature of the symposium, namely that as the soul progresses up the ladder of perfection, it moves from a love of beautiful souls to a love of increasingly non-personal objects, culminating in the beautiful itself. The question that regularly refers to modern readers, of course, is how love of the impersonal can replace love of the personal. Clearly, love of the impersonal is unproblematic in itself. We may love a beautiful landscape and hope to see it again, long to see it again. In that case, the love of the impersonal does not replace the love of the personal, it sits alongside it. Indeed, the pathetic fallacy that the speaker of the habit of naming beloved boats by usually female names indicates that we try in often facile or futile ways to personalise our love of the impersonal. But in the symposium, Plato's love of the impersonal replaces that of the personal, and he himself seems to have noticed in a curiously oblique way that something's gone wrong. Not only in the Phaedrus, which in many other respects corrects the symposium, does he introduce a counter-eros, a love in reply to eros, but later on in the Sophist, he emphasises that real being, his language, cannot be simply lifeless. But for Christians and other theists, that's not enough. For such, the morally relevant point about a divine person is that he, and therefore we, can guarantee the unique importance of individual human beings. The Christian notion of a human person is logically generated from, and serves as a corollary to, the notion of a divine person in whose image and likeness we are. Thus, only if God matters do we as individuals matter. Of course, as I've noted, among contemporary non-believers too, the importance of the human individual is regularly taken to be the cornerstone of morality, especially, but by no means only, of a Kantian sort. But in the case of Kant, and indeed more widely, I've already intimated that we should pay much more heed still to Anscombe's contention that almost all contemporary and moral, philosoph modern moral philosophy depends on Christian metaphysical and psychological theses to which its proponents are not logically entitled and which many of them explicitly reject. As, uh, but as we shall discover, a more cynical defence of such proceeding, apparently unforeseen even by Anscombe, is now widely current among the professionals. Being a person is important not only that we usually assume, unless we are honest utilitarians or other advocates of the greatest goods of large numbers of people, which necessarily is often at the expense of those of individuals, that individual persons matter uniquely, and that this mattering sums up what morality is about. It's also in a broader sense which may serve to introduce our second Augustinian thesis, that is, that relating to the difference between sin and crime. The difference in a crime and a sin, which may, not, or may or may not legally be a crime, of this a recurring example of course would be abortion, is that a sin is an offence against a personal deity, not merely against an impersonal form, which as only a formal and final cause is non-sensitive and ineffective since abstract. That's why a special kind of obedience is integral to a theistic morality and why some different model of obedience is demanded by any serious alternative. The secularist, in light of his inferior theory, may recognise his behaviour in some quasi-legal way as wrong, 
What he will obviously be prevented from recognising is that it also offends against a person who has and claims the right to be obeyed because of what he is and because of what we are in relation to him. Here again we recognise that religious morality and non-religious ethics are very different animals. The idea of sin not only points the way towards the creator, or at least fashion a God, but emphasises the serious nature of moral lapse and the immoral and unrealistic character of the individual who lapses. It has been said by Peter Brown that Augustine drove the problem of evil and of original sin, that is of its seriousness, into the heart of Christianity. That needs a bit of correcting. Augustine didn't invent the problem. His success was in further developing a coherent and powerful intellectual thesis to resolve it. The attempt to deny that thesis, or pay it lip service, has been a mark of most modern and contemporary philosophy, and yet more mindlessly, of much contemporary theology. But such denials are flawed by habitual blindness to the surely salient fact that in it we have a theological proposition claiming strong empirical support and explaining a variety of otherwise totally baffling human phenomena. Do not our papers regularly inform us when some crime of extreme sort is committed of the, quote, sheer evil and how it is, quote, simply inexplicable, etc. The distinction between ordinary crimes and sins that offend God invites us to comment further on God's nature as a source of morality. Many Greek philosophers, and Xenophanes and Heraclitus on, were insistent that traditional accounts of the gods were false because the gods were, were presented as beyond morality or as morally offensive. And as I've said, with the Enlightenment, similar charges were brought against the God of the Old Testament and his traditionally admired servants such as Abraham and King David. And that not only by such as Voltaire, but by concerned Christians like Pierre Bayle. Both the older and the more recent critics argue that if there is a God, he must be a moral being, which doesn't imply, as Plato often supposed, that he must be subordinate to other, moralities, other realities such as goodness. He can, as Christians should hold, be identical with them, revealing justice and beauty as divine attributes. God's goodness is not ours, that much one must grant to the voluntarist, but our goodness partakes, to use Platonic language, in his. Even in their caricatures, however, Voltaire and the others drew attention to a genuine problem. For morality as mere obedience to God's will is open to abuse, and indeed is regularly abused in religious traditions where the God to be obeyed is not presented as necessarily or pr even primarily good, as, for example, when his power is elevated above his goodness. Strictly voluntarist accounts of God are of no use in the account of morality I want to defend. Harking back as they do to the crude amoralism of the Greek Olympians or to early Hebrew accounts of Yahweh which can be interpreted similarly, that is, as denoting a figure to whom God and evil, good and evil are ultimately irrelevant. One should obey God not simply because the mark commands us to do so, but also because we know, even if we don't always understand, that his commands are good as reflecting the goodness of his own nature and at the same time that they're good for us, that is, they enable us to live as we've been designed to live, and therefore indirectly, happily. No account of morality will be plausible if it fails to mention not simply God, but God's good purposes. Whereas a theistic morality says we must begin by recognising that they were not gods, 
A secular morality wants us in various degrees to act as if we were. Traditionally, this antithesis has been posed in the form that sin ultimately depends on pride, above all on our trying to be self-creators, and that virtue begins with the humble but not humiliating recognition that we are not gods and that we should, and that we should idolize neither ourselves nor anything else, such as history or progress or autonomy or sex or choice. And of course, idolatry and self-idolatry are not limited to dictators. The contemporary Western scene provides countless examples of pop stars or soccer players dealing out pearls of wisdom to their unthinking admirers, some boast of being more influential than Jesus. To reject such idolatry, which, to accept that we are mortal, and if more, only by the grace of God, is not moralistic snivelling or holier-than-thou hypocrisy, as it's often been portrayed by those who confuse humility and truth-telling with civility. It's an attempt to reject obvious but attractive lies and propose possible and plausible truths. So I now turn to Augustine's third point, his insistence found especially in the City of God, where he comments on the role of philosophy in the good life, that will exist in historical as well as metaphysical space. How this is important for morality is one of the implications of the remark of Aristotle in Metaphysics Zeta, 1036a, that there's no definition of the individual who can only be recognized by the senses or the mind. That means that the findings of metaphysics, being impersonal, we might see them almost as analogous to those of departments of public health, can only identify our existential situation in general terms. Hardcore Thomas beware. We can learn from metaphysics, as from other sciences, what we are as members of the human race, not what we are as individual members, which may rather be the subject matter of religion, as also what in general may be expected of us morally, but not what specific actions we ought to perform or are capable of performing as individual cases. Aristotle recognised in the Narcomachean Ethics, Book 5, and it's interesting that Aquinas doesn't comment on this text in his commentary on the ethics. I was very puzzled to find that. Aristotle recognised in the Narcomachean Ethics, Book 5, that a lawgiver can prescribe what is just in general, not what is equitable in individual circumstances and situations. Hence, the discretionary power should always be left in the hands of the magistrate. And that such observations give further substance to the religious and realistic view that whatever our theoretical or ideal situation, as behind a veil of ignorance or whatever, in the real world, we're each located in radically different circumstances. One practical effect of that is that though humanly and legally there may be something we can do to remedy the effects of a particular criminal offence, by, say, taking account of extenuating circumstances when a, quote, just quotes, law is broken, we cannot be sure of the accuracy of the moral understanding that underlies, or should underlie, the judgments that we, or our representatives, have to make in individual circumstances. In extreme cases, that might mean that we don't know whether in God's eyes a criminal should be punished as responsible for what he's done. Even though to protect society or deter himself and others from crimes in the future, he will still have to be punished. There is a sense in which the unerring justice of God is a warrant and a safeguard, not only for the apparently obvious villain, but for all of us. That much at least is implied in judge not that ye be not judged. I have now identified three clear advantages for a coherent account of moral obligation, 
If the first principle, the religious source of morality, is no impersonal entity such as a platonic form, but a personal divinity. The personal divinity not only guarantees moral obligations, but helps explicate the peculiarly serious nature of moral offences, that is, of sins rather than merely inconvenient crimes, as well as enabling us to ponder their seriousness with due reference to the varying circumstances in which people find themselves in their individual lives. For as I have argued, the old enlightenment axiom that we are all, as presently situated, faced with identical moral dangers must be denied, and Christianity has a theological explanation of that apparently random and irrational situation, and why it's so important that it be recognised in its doctrine of original sin. That teaching, widely ignored as I've said as much by Christians as by de facto pagans like Hobbes, accounts both for why we have moral problems in the first place and why they are so variegated. As already noted, it has both biblical and empirical roots. Biblically, in the story of the fall or failure of Adam and its consequences, and we are now being assured that we must at least have an Eve as our common ancestor, Empirically, in that it offers an explanation of obvious, if too conveniently and easily forgotten, facts about human life. Please consider the following citation on the impact of the atrocities of the Second World War, and specifically in what was revealed to those entering the concentration camp at Dachau. Quote, World War II was a savage, insensate affair, barely conceivable to the well-conducted imagi imagination, and hardly approachable without some currently unfashionable theory of human mass insanity and inbuilt inherited corruption." Close quotes. These are the words of an atheist, bearing witness to the empirical precision of the Christian dogma, less perhaps than it offers to make stupendous evil intelligible than revealing it as strangely unsurprising. Yet to infer a fall is to usher in a human race intended for perfection. Otherwise, it would be an account not of a fallen corruption, but merely of change, and an intended perfection might imply an intender. So as logical alternatives to religious morality, we are left with a nihilism, whether of a Sartre or of a Nietzsche, or some Protagorean construction which lacks any morally as distinct from legally or otherwise conventionally binding force. Either moral values and moral obligations are a reality, or they are a human construct. Convenient, certainly, but as Nietzsche and Dostoevsky reminded us again, not ultimately compelling. And now there is an increasingly fashionable variant that they are a fantasy whereby we may pretend or be deluded into believing that they are naturally binding. Here I go beyond Anscombe's account of the present situation. Anscombe's argument was that modern moral philosophers are trying to base their moral language and hence their moral claims on metaphysical or religious underpinnings which they in fact reject and to which they are therefore not entitled. But she also seemed to hope that after a period of reflection, especially on philosophical psychology, we should be able to restart ethical inquiry in a less disingenuous spirit. Indeed, one or two philosophers have in effect taken up her challenge in trying to construct an avowedly secularist ethic based, so they claim, on no hidden metaphysical or religious foundations. Parfit's Reasons and Persons, Oxford 968, is an outstanding example of this sort of project, a genuine attempt in the Benthamite tradition to avoid any talk, for example, of metaphysical entities such as inalienable rights. 
More typical of the conventional scene, of course, is the world so loosely described by Macintyre in the opening pages of After Virtue, in which we are invited to reflect on, quote, ethicists shouting past one another on every conceivable moral topic. But now, as I've implied, a new way out of our difficulties is widely canvassed. I call it virtual morality. An analogous ghost can be seen among our literary lions. Their ancestors can be traced back at least as far as the mid-19th century nostalgia of Matthew Arnold's famous poem, On Dover Beach. For as what, they, what Arnold calls the tide of faith has receded, the difficulties of sustaining a strong and viable non-religious morality have washed up a nostalgic, or is it now a cynical, alternative. So just as poetry can now redeem without a redeemer, thus purporting to fill the gap left by salvationist religions, in our case Christianity, so we can pretend that we live in a morally value-laden universe, there are opinion formers and elites know perfectly well that we do not. Some, like Richard Rorty or the rules of political liberalism, are more straightforward about the situation, almost avowing themselves not moralists by so, but social engineers. Rorty, of course, took the step of exchanging a chair of philosophy for one in comparative literature. Others, however, are more canny, sometimes preferring to compare moral qualities to Lockean secondary qualities, and always eager to retain that apparently objective sense of duty or moral obligation, which no mere convention nor latter-day neo-hysterism, much beloved especially but not only by French ex-Christians and ex-clergy, can justify. There is a curiously unphilosophical tone about all such proceedings. They remind me of undergraduates who deny traditional sexual mores on the grounds that everything is subjective or a matter of choice. But when I invite them to go packy-bashing or Jew-baiting, they insist that this is, quote, simply wrong. The only explanation of that assertion is that it just feels so, or just is so. Gilbert Ryle once remarked that someone in court for theft would get short shrift if he said he knew the difference in right and wrong but had forgotten what it was. <laughs> Although it's indeed difficult to forget there is a difference in right and wrong, both for believers and for non-believers, even if at times they want to, the difficulty is to justify it philosophically without recourse to religion. At least since the 17th century, though with precursors as far back as the 14th, some have reflected on natural behaviour in an apparently and sometimes explicitly stoic fashion, that is, without appealing to any transcendental justification for such behaviour. For the Stoics themselves, such justification could be found in their pantheistic deity, in which our minds are fragments within the cosmos. Implausible as such an account of natural law always was, the more so after Hume pointed out the difficulties of deriving a moral ought from an is, it's even more implausible in light of our present scientifically governed view of a universe quite unlike that of the ancient Stoics and long since demythologized. Any contemporary attempt to find more than conventional values within the cosmos looks even more implausible than its Stoic original. Yet such high-flown naturalism, whether or not spiced up by the virtual and desperate morality of nostalgia, or now at times by the notion that a binding morality has evolved, which is merely another example of the myth of historical progress, is regularly proposed as a serious defence of such metaphysical entities as natural rights. The age of enlightenment and the age of ideology have now been succeeded by the age of self-deception, willful or otherwise. 
That is, if ideologies are rising no longer from a bad metaphysics, which has been shown out for what it is, but from mere whim or wishful thinking. Such empty platitudes are grist of the hedonists of the advertising industry. And it's at this squalid level, rather than with the birth of the Superman driven off by Nietzsche, that the discovery of the death of God spawns its moral effects. As, of course, is only what those who postulate original sin assumed. Man, they say, without divine grace, is seriously injured right now. And that injury takes effect not only on the level of the great and the good, nor only on that of the brutal, but equally on the level of the mean, the banal, the ugly, the trivial, the hypocritical. Summing up his confessed failure to reconcile the claims of duty and happiness near the end of his methods of ethics, Henry Sidgwick lamented the appalling social consequences if such a failure became known to the public at large. Rather than accept such a loss of social glue, he believed it would be better to pretend that there had been no failure. By now, that pretense has been going on for so long that those who pretend, even some of the smarter ones, have long lost any sense that they're actually pretending. Plato, with a transcendental metaphysic as yet only inadequately personalised, had foreseen this aspect of the contemporary panorama. Revisiting in the Republic, 560 following, the theme of the historian Thucydides, that sophists and demagogues manipulate moral terms to trick the public, he implies here and elsewhere that the manipulators will come in the end to believe their own lies. That is, if indeed in their world anything can properly be actually called a lie. Before moving to my last point, I think I should reiterate what I'm trying to do in this lecture. I've not attempted to prove the existence of a personal God, only to argue that without such a God, morality, as distinct from conventionalism and nihilism, cannot be justified. No theist should say that, argue that God invents goodness. Either God is good or he is not. And if God couldn't invent it, what possible reason could there be for supposing that anything more than substitution lies within the human capacity? I'm not quite, unhappily for you, at an end, but almost. If nonsense transcendental morality must be reduced to something like a professional code, always intellectually defenseless against nihilist challenges, why do a number of committed Christian philosophers think not only that they can, but they must defend it, not only without metaphysics, but without allowing the necessity of God? Several factors must be considered if we want to frame a reply. Some are moral, the rest more generally philosophical. At the moral level, many Christian philosophers, as indeed many Western Christians, seem as it were to be punch drunk. They dare not openly claim that only the existence of God enables them to progress towards solving basic problems in moral philosophy. That leads them to debate such matters entirely on terms set by their secular opponents. Fearful as they are of being, being named as fideists, if they decline to do so, being thus victims of the culture in which we actually live. Instead of being ready to claim to assume, for example, that human can't have eliminated the possibility of traditional meta-ethics, they should proceed as far as they can within the limits of secular philosophy, but be prepared to admit it when by doing so they hit a brick wall. For perhaps that brick wall might be demolished if God were allowed in, at least as a thought experiment. Christian thinkers should be prepared, as in the past they have been, to say to their atheist rivals, you're in a difficulty from which you cannot escape. Hence, to revert to an example I've already spoken of, you want something called human rights, but you cannot begin to agree on how they can be defended, 
though theists have no basic difficulty in defending them. Or you don't want to be shown up as nihilist or defenseless against nihilism. We alone can show you how not to be trapped in the way you are at present. Finally, I'll mention a startling case where the attempt to talk to secularists on their own terms not merely collapses, but demonstrates its own impossible absurdity. Some Catholic philosophers, despising the pre-Humean world, have claimed through practical reasoning alone to be able to compile a list of obviously basic goods. Almost all lists, however, include the good of religion. But of course, no atheist can regard religion as an intrinsic good, and many think that, many think that at least most of its varieties are positively evil. And this, this attitude is increasing in the last few years. So the Christian, purporting to begin with universally recognisable goods, either has to construct a list in which religion, including his own religion, is not a good, or he has to advance an opinion which no secularist can accept. It's not surprising that such moods have been greeted with contempt in much of the secular world. Much better to be frank enough to admit the possibility of God in the first place. But if God, then religion, and no merely descriptive metaphysics, as that latter phrase is now commonly understood. And we have no need, here we're back to moral courage, to be quite so desperate to leave religion aside. For as Plato and Aristotle both said, Aristotle mocking Plato and Plato mocking Homer, truth is more important, especially for a philosopher. Although at a cursory glance it may not look as though morality depends for justification on some sorts of religious belief, and although contemporary theophobes wish it otherwise, and try and pretend it is otherwise, if they think seriously about it at all, morality and religion, philosophically at least, stand or fall together. That is, unless we conspire to use words like morality and moral obligation to indicate any code of behaviour we happen, for whatever reason, to prefer. A contemporary, desirous of justifying his moral obligations, must update the last words of Thomas More and say, as also in the spirit of Socrates, before the court of Athenian public opinion and society, I die the public's good servant because I am God's first. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.